Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Genesis, three sections from chapter 37, chapter 45, and chapter 50. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So I sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And then from chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And finally from chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent him a message saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, 
Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to him, them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. For those of you visiting or maybe don't know me, I'm Ivan Lambert. Uh, My wife, Diane, is the pianist here. You see her every Sunday. And uh, it's a real privilege to be here today. As Drew uh, told us last week, we began a series for the summer months. Not a not a series that you're going to be all excited about. Uh, we'd love to stand before you and tell you that God has told us that you're all going to strike it rich, you're going to win the lottery, you're going to do great in the stock market, and you're going to live your best life now. But that would not be responsible, and that would not be honest before God and before you. As we've read today, uh, this is a remarkable story. Uh, the narrative of Joseph covers... Genesis 37 all the way through Genesis 50. So my task is to teach you those 13 chapters in roughly 30 minutes. Uh, But the Bible's storyline is what we must remember when we encounter any story. Where does this story of Joseph in particular fit into the Bible's storyline? You may recall in Genesis God created everything good. But then as early as chapter 3 we have the fall. As early as chapter 4, we have a man, what are you doing with two wives? And then we have a murder. That early. Chapter 6, we have the flood. And by chapter 12, God is calling out a man from the Ur of the Chaldees and giving him a great promise. His name was Abraham. And he promised Abraham that you are going to be a man whom I will give many descendants, I will give you a land, and you'll be a blessing to the nations. And God repeats this promise through his son Jacob, uh, through his son Isaac, and then through Isaac's son Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons, and they are the original children of Israel. And that's where we pick up the story of Joseph. Joseph is the 11th of the 12 sons. However, every family being dysfunctional, a matter of degrees, of course, but every family does have its dysfunction, Joseph was the favorite. And his brothers began to resent it. Uh, We've had that in our own family. I'm sure some of you have had that in yours. We only had two children. And through the years, it has been remarkable to my wife and I to hear our oldest, David, claim that Mark is clearly the favorite. And then in a private moment for Mark to come to us and say, it's clear, it's obvious, David is the favorite. But in this case, all the brothers were in unison that Joseph was clearly the favorite. You can imagine being a teenager and knowing you're the favorite. Your father has given you this ornate, expensive robe and not the other children. 
And imagine that being an immature uh, teenager and living with knowing you're the favorite. That did not go over too well. He did not know how to handle that. And then we're even told that Joseph was given these dreams where God was letting him know that he would be in a great position someday and even his brothers would bow to him. And Joseph did not handle that too well and he flaunted that to the brothers. And of course, what did that do? It just fueled the hatred of the brothers even more. And so we're told that the brothers were out tending the flocks in Shechem, as uh, Susan read for us. And Jacob one day decides, hey, Joseph, go out, check on your brothers, see how they're doing, report back to me. Joseph goes out to Shechem to find the brothers with the flocks, and to his surprise, no brothers, no flocks. He happens upon a man who tells him, oh, yeah, I, I overheard this conversation. And, and that all your brothers were taking their flocks down to Dothan. So Joseph says, I can handle that. I'll go on out to Dothan. Joseph heads on out to Dothan and finds his brothers there. And the brothers decide, well, hey, we're out here in the deserted place of Dothan, a real rural area. There's nobody out here. We hate this guy. He shows up in his favorite robe, of all things. They start conspiring to see what they're going to do to Joseph. Some want to kill him. Some others, they want to debate and say, well, let's sell him. We, we could get some money for him. So he's thrown into an empty cistern where they decide to sell him to some slave traders that came by. They just happen to go down to Egypt. And he just happens to be purchased by a man named Potiphar. And while he is the house slave of Potiphar years past, but Joseph is maturing into a young man, and Potiphar's wife sees that uh, Joseph is an attractive young man. And so she comes on to, to Joseph. Joseph refuses her, and who knows, perhaps that is the origin of the saying, hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned. She will have Joseph thrown into prison as she reports this to Potiphar. She claims she was raped. There he is. He's been thrown into an empty cistern. He has been sold to slave traders, taken from the land of which he knows down to Egypt, falsely accused of raping a woman, and thrown into prison. Where are you, God? You promised me that one day I would have some great position. Even my brothers would bow before me. And here I am in prison. Now, I know the vast majority of you are much more spiritual than myself. But when things have gone wrong, not as I planned, not as I wanted, uh, it is not my common knee-jerk reaction to quote Psalm 23. It is not my... Um, innate nature to simply say, oh, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. So no doubt Joseph, too, is wondering where God is. While he's in prison, he is placed there before one who 
ends up being Pharaoh's cupbearer. Pharaoh's cupbearer has a dream. He can't understand it. He begins to talk to Joseph about it. And Joseph says, oh, yeah, I understand that. And tells him the dream. Oh, that's great. And the cupbearer runs off. And uh, he gets to go back into good standing as Pharaoh's cupbearer. But Joseph is forgotten again in prison. Where are you, God? I mean, I did this to help. He gets promoted back up into Pharaoh's court. And I'm left here in prison. Pharaoh himself was having, apparently, a couple of puzzling dreams. He could not decipher them. He tells his cupbearer. The cupbearer can't understand what the dreams are, and he remembers, ah, there was a guy in prison who helped me and interpreted the dream correctly for me. So Joseph is summoned. He's brought in. He hears of Pharaoh's dreams. Oh, my. Do I tell the Pharaoh what this dream really means? I mean, this is not good news. He trusts God. He tells the Pharaoh what the Pharaoh needs to hear, not what the Pharaoh wants to hear. You see, the dream was a grotesque dream, which interpreted meant that there was going to be severe famine in the land. Severe enough that the famine was going to last for seven years. It was going to be severe enough that Joseph said the nations will be starving. But Joseph... In, in believing that God was sovereign through this, believed that is, uh, Egypt had the resources and that if they were wise and how they were stewards of the resources they had, Egypt could become a powerful power player for the nations during that time. Well, Pharaoh listens to the wisdom of Joseph and promotes Joseph out of prison and into his court, into a high position Uh, there in the government of the land. Sure enough, famine came. Nations hungered. People died. Egypt learned under Joseph's administration policies of a a hunger relief program, if you will, to be good stewards. And people from the nations came to Egypt begging to purchase food. And sure enough, one day, in those seven years of famine, ten hungry, desperate men from the land of Israel showed up at Joseph's feet. And remember, some time has passed, years have passed. Joseph is now an adult, a mature adult. Joseph's brothers are those ten men. And they don't recognize Joseph. But Joseph, of course, recognizes his older brothers. Joseph keeps his wits about him, his composure, and tries to help them relive what they've done by being very coy. He he implies to them and accuses them of being dishonest, which they had been. He calls them spies. And accusing them of being spies, says, uh, okay, you've got your food, you can return, but one of the brothers stays with me. And so the brother was forced to remain. His name was Benjamin. Judah, who had been the lead dog, if you will, in selling off Joseph in the first place, is convicted deeply. 
And so, remarkably, God is working on his heart, and he offers up himself to Joseph and says, no, let my brother go. I will stay and be the punishment for my brother. At this, seeing Judah's heart move, Joseph is moved, and he bursts into tears. Comes clean. I am Joseph. I am Joseph. And it was to save lives that God sent me here to Egypt ahead of you. Yes, Joseph had many times wondered earlier, where are you, God? But here, in this moment, he was able to start putting the pieces together. God, yes, had seemed distant, but he was not. He had seemed silent, but all along he was working. Not only was he working, but the remarkable thing, as we saw in the last verses that Susan read, God was in complete control of what looked like chaos, tragedy, despair. God was in control. And so we see that God indeed used Joseph's suffering. And it is remarkable all the coincidences that occurred in this story. I've already given you some of them, but for one, it's just that Jacob decided on that particular day to have Joseph go out to Shechem to find his brothers. And that Joseph decided to wear his ornate robe on that day. And that when he arrived there, the brothers weren't there. They had already decided to go to Dothan. And that he just happened to be on a man who just happened to hear the conversation of the brothers leaving and going from Shechem to a real rural, deserted place like Dothan, where they could get by with their scheme. There were no eyewitnesses. They're just out there in the fields. Where they could concoct the story of the animal coming to kill Joseph. There were no eyewitnesses. Now, what do you say to people who are going through terrible suffering? If you turn on your televisions and you watch Christian television, it is remarkable some of the things that are suggested. And as a result, we can often hear people say, I, God has told me. He's given me a vision. He's told me in my sleep or told me through this passage that you're going to be healed. You're not going to suffer in this certain way and everything's going to be okay, blah, 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 blah. I'm reminded of the words of Ecclesiastes, that sh- short book with so much wisdom. Do not be quick with your mouth, Ecclesiastes 5, if you're wondering. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. So let your words be few. I was reminded of this a few years ago. A friend of our, of our family had been stabbed more than once and was in the hospital. And that very morning that all happened, and we heard about it, and I went to the hospital, and as I'm going up to the room, I'm wondering, what am I going to say? not wanting my words to be many and not wanting to make a fool out of myself and not wanting to promise them something I couldn't promise them. I remember going into the room and after a bit of just being there, just being a presence there, just trying to be a loving presence, 
I thought of the story of Joseph. And so I told the mom and dad and the son that was there, you know, I know this is hard for you to believe at this time, and, and I don't have the words for you. Can I just point you to some words that God gives us? And they were very agreeable to that and briefly told them the story. And I said, you know, this is true. What you are experiencing today is a result of evil. What you are experiencing today is a result of hate and living in a sinful world. And I don't know how all this works together, but the words at the end of that story is that, yes, the brothers meant it for evil, what they did to Joseph. And yes, that person meant it for evil, what he's done to your son, but somehow God meant it for good. And all I can offer you today is to trust that promise, embrace God's promise that he meant this for good, and he is going to work it out for some good in his eternal purposes. Feeling um, very inadequate to talk to people at a time like that, it was really comforting to see God work. For a year later, the mom approached me and said, you know, what you said that day, about God meaning it for good. That had never occurred to me, but it was God's word you showed us, and I have learned to trust that promise. And so once again, we are taught that we're nothing but a mouthpiece, nothing but an ambassador, nothing but a spokesman for God. We're merely his instruments. God speaks through his word to bring comfort to his people. But these are secret things we don't understand. You're probably sitting there wondering, well, which one was it? Was God sovereign and in control of all events? Or are those people responsible for the evil and and the uh, harm that they have brought? And the answer, yes. Both are equally stated in Scripture to be equally true. And what we often do As Christian theologians, people in the pews, trying to figure this out, trying to live this out, we will often water down one and make the other stronger, or vice versa. But Scripture doesn't do that. We see clearly what Susan read for us. You meant it for evil. They're totally 100% responsible for their actions. But God meant it for good. Did you notice it doesn't say there... You meant it for evil, but God somehow permitted this to happen. He somehow just let it happen. No, that's not what Scripture depicts for us. Nothing occurs to God. God doesn't have to wing it once in a while and try to work things out, despite what we do. The picture that is depicted here of God in the midst of this evil, of what the brothers perpetrated on Joseph, is that God was still behind it all, at all times, and in control. God meant it. God intended it for good. And so we must uphold those two truths at all times. Human responsibility, divine sovereignty. And, of course, you say, but I don't understand that. And to that I say, join the club. If you could understand everything about God, why would you want to worship him? 
To the prophet Isaiah, God had said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. At some point, you and I just have to keep reminding ourselves, welcome to the human race. I am a human. I am finite. The finite cannot contain the infinite. I am not God. And let God be God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may follow the words of his law. See, if you're like me, you'd rather speculate. and You'd rather try to figure out God's ways and why this happened and why that happened. But that's not revealed to you. So why waste our time doing that? Why don't we do what we've been called to do to learn and trust and believe on the things revealed to us in God's Word? And that was what Moses was telling. I just cited Deuteronomy 29. That's what Moses was reminding the people before they went into the land. Secret things are not revealed to us, but believe on the things that are revealed to us. Our times are in God's hands. And God will fulfill his purposes. But he will not always fulfill them as we would choose. And he will not always fulfill them as you and I prefer. He will not always fulfill them through miracles and through escape hatches. Now, some of you have had to live through this much more than myself. We lived through this a couple of years ago in 2010. I can remember vividly we're sitting in my in-law's kitchen And my mother-in-law, who was uh, suffering from cancer, a long, terrible battle, five, six years. And she announced to Diane and I at the kitchen table, I still recall Diane was sitting to her right, and then I was sitting to Diane's right. It was so vivid. She just knew God had given her the faith, she said, to believe that she was going to be healed from her cancer. Now, how do you respond to that? A lot of the details, you know, everything just kind of stopped at that moment. I mean, you want to tell people what they want to hear, right? But you also know you need to try. Diane looked at me, and I probably had some kind of blank look like, what are we going to do? And Diane, to her credit realizing it was her mother so that I wouldn't have to be the bad son-in-law? She decided to tell her mother at that moment. And gently, but yet firmly, you know, Mom, have you thought that um, the same God who can heal you of your cancer is the same God who could have kept you from getting cancer? that the same God who can give you faith 
to believe you can be healed is the same God who can give you faith to believe he may not heal you. And then he has other plans. That was a hard word to give. But I sat there and watched it. And I knew that God was being glorified through that because he was being shown to be almighty and working all things together for good. Now that is a passage, the Genesis 50-20, that is very much a par- paralleled, I should say, in Romans chapter 8. And many have heard that. And what we need to be careful of is that we just don't use it as a cliche and that we don't glibly just give it out to people with real no meaning. All things work together for good, for those who love God, who are the called ones according to his purpose. But it is true yet. We just don't want to be glib and not empathetic with people. and Just give it out there. But yet there's a time and a place for everything and how to give God's word. May God give us wisdom to know when and how to do that. May God give us wisdom to know how to tell ourselves that in the midst of terrible suffering and agony when we're wondering, where are you, God? Where's my blessing? Where's my blessing, my my peace, my prosperity? As Drew said last week, Francis Schaeffer said that our Christianity was being watered down to personal peace and affluence. And that is so often true. God does work. And God does work all things together for good for those who love him. But what Paul is saying in Romans 8, that verse there is actually in the context, yes, of human suffering. If you read the ten verses before that, you will find that there were times when Paul is saying, we have suffered. And we have not even known how to pray we have suffered so. But the Spirit has prayed through us and for us with groans that we cannot even express. This was illustrated for me 10, 12 years ago. I was serving a church in Brandon, a church in our denomination. And a dear lady was dying of cancer, and she was in the hospital, and I went to visit her. Her name was Ruth. And as I went in to visit Ruth, I had determined that I was going to read to her Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. The portion of that was our call to worship this morning, and this is why. As I began to read that portion of scripture to Ruth, Ruth began to tear up. Ruth had been uh, given the diagnosis that her condition was uh, definitely terminal. Ruth was going to die. In reading the passage, as I said, Ruth began to tear up. Then she began to cry. Then she began to literally moan and groan as she cried. I became very uncomfortable. I didn't know what to do. Do I stop? Do I keep going? I paused for a moment. In just a sense of my own inadequacy, I said, you know, Ivan, anything you could offer at this moment would be so terrible and so bad. Just give God's word. Just keep reading. She began to 
audibly get louder and louder as she cried. And it was terrible. I finished with those verses that Jonathan read for us earlier this morning. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not even death. And I went home. The next morning, very early, first thing in the office, 8 to 8.30, the phone rings. It's Ruth's son, Mike. Now, Mike is an adult in his maybe 40s at the time. When he said, it's, hey, Ivan, it's uh, Mike. Uh, Mom told me about your visit yesterday. I immediately got nervous. She told him how bad it was. It was terrible. I meant good. I, I meant to go there and just try to be God's servant. And Mike said, I just want to tell you, um, Mom said that was a wonderful visit yesterday. She did. And as I told the story to Diane later, it was just a remarkable thing realizing that she was receiving a consolation through God's word. Certainly it wasn't through a human being at that point. This was a consolation that she was receiving that she could embrace the promise like never before because she had reached a point like never before. And she was trusting and embracing the promise that nothing was going to separate her from God's love in Christ Jesus, even her death. And she did die within a couple of days. Is it any wonder when we contemplate all these things? Yes, God works all things together for good. But he doesn't always do it through a miracle. He worked out Ruth's death for good. She will one day be resurrected and receive a new, sinless, non-decaying, non-cancerous body. God doesn't always bring us our miracle like we want. He doesn't bring us a, an escape door to escape life's sufferings. Sometimes he employs secondary causes to bring about his means of his purposes. And as we've seen today, they may be governmental powers. In this life, we've found out they can be sinful actions of others. They can even be things like sporting events. And yes, even the weather which brings drought, which brings famine. Is it any wonder that Paul would write, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? You see, this God who calls us to follow him through suffering, through the valley of the shadow of death. doesn't call you to do something that he has not first done himself. For some 2,000 years after Joseph, we read of the ultimate Joseph. We read of the one who was God the Son, who was omnipotent and yet came down and made himself into one that took on human weakness. The one who came and could have crushed his enemies and would have been just in doing so, by the way came to suffer at the hands of his enemies, to be hated by them, slandered by them, murdered. 
crucified. We find him in his anguish on the night before he is crucified in the garden there. And he says, he's praying, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I can't turn back now. I have a mission to glorify the Father and to show his love in a way that it's never been shown before and to show his justice in a way it's never been shown before. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The one who could have come in judgment came in grace, came in mercy, and offered himself an atonement for human sins. The one who could have come in justice and holy wrath permitted himself to have that same justice and holy wrath poured out on his head. As Paul says, he became a curse for us. He who knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. Yes, Joseph was unjustly thrown into a cistern and charged of rape. And How much more, Jesus? The one who never sinned, being charged with being a blasphemer, a political revolutionary, a liar, etc., etc. And there he is on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There it is. Where are you, God? Where was God? As remarkable as it sounds, there at that moment, God was forsaking his son that he might forgive his chosen people. (laughs) It is sometimes beyond words to think that the Son was forsaken that we might be forgiven. Is it any wonder that that Paul calls it God's unspeakable love, his unspeakable grace? And so, yes, in this life, we have not yet reached the, the point of the total consummation where there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more death, Revelation 21. We still live in a fallen world. And so we must remind one another, yes, we will suffer at the hands of evildoers. Yes, we will be wronged. We will be sinned against. And yes, we will even uh, suffer in our bodies. But as we do, and we do have those crosses to bear, we can be reminded to look to the cross where no man suffered like that man for he was the only innocent man that ever had the curse of God poured out on him. Look to the cross. The worst injustice ever at the hands of human sinners as well. Yet God in his unspeakable love works things out according to his gracious plans for his people. Yes, as you and I begin to grow in the Christian faith, we learn that God is almighty and he is sovereign and he works all things out. But as we grow further, and I leave you with this, may it be that we learn to recognize God for those of us in Christ. He is not just omnipotent and the almighty, but he is our loving father. Let's pray. Father, I know I have not done this tremendous text justice this morning. I do pray that you would speak through the texts that we have used today that we would be reminded indeed that you are our loving Father and that though none of us deserve it, you have chosen to save us through the work of Jesus Christ.
And may we see you as our loving Father. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Time for our benediction of spoken blessing, and how can you add to that? The love of God, it shall endure. So we have our benediction. Receive this benediction today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace in the midst of suffering, both now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.